The Inksa Horizons podcast. Conversations at the intersection of science, society, and public policy. Welcome to the Inksa Horizons podcast. I'm Naomi Simon-Kumar. In this series, we bring you fascinating discussions between people working at the interfaces of science, society, and policymaking. Are you among those who can remember what life was like before the internet? Or maybe before smartphones and the explosion of the virtual world? Either way, could you have imagined just how all-encompassing the technology would be in less than a generation? Could you have imagined the incredible benefits and complex challenges that this revolution has brought? Living our lives increasingly online is perhaps the most obvious of the paradigm shifts that have fundamentally changed how we interact socially, economically, and politically. But what are the other paradigm shifts that are on the horizon? Artificial intelligence, automation, and climate adaptations all come to mind. Will these paradigm shifts be evolution or revolution? And just how will they change how humans live and interact? Both science and policy rely on agreed understandings of the world we live in. But what happens when those foundations are in flux? To start teasing apart some of these issues, Inks are brought together an unlikely group. The head of a UN agency, a highly respected Indigenous knowledge keeper, a renowned Oxford professor, and a visionary economist and public commentator. Leading the discussion, we have Ian Golden, Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford, speaking with Armin Yalnesian, economist and Atkinson Fellow for the Future of Workers, Elder Dave Korshane, Knowledge Keeper of the Anishinaabe Nation, and Akim Steiner, Head of the United Nations Development Programme. This session was recorded at the INCSA 2021 conference. Over to you, Professor Golden. It's a huge pleasure to be able to moderate this session and to be able to address this extraordinarily important issue of paradigm shifts, which we desperately need. And I'm sure all the participants feel this need. The old paradigm has got us to where we are. That's the reason we have escalating climate change. That's the reason why we have a pandemic that we weren't prepared for. That's the reason why we have growing inequality and extreme poverty around the world and conflict. But how are we going to get a new paradigm? How are we going to move to a better world and rebuild? And I want to thank the International Network for Government Scientists for bringing this together, for finding the opportunity to step back and ask this very deep and profound question and for putting together a panel which I am greatly looking forward to hearing from, a panel which brings different perspectives. And part of the paradigm change is indeed to be able to listen to different perspectives, to have a more transdisciplinary approach. And that is what I think we'll be able to achieve in the coming 40 minutes or so. I'm going to begin the panel with Armina Yalnazian, who has wide-ranging perspectives. We will certainly also be hearing from Achim Steiner and Elder Dave Korshan. So Armina, give us some introductory comments on this. 
Thank you, Professor Golden. I am delighted to be part of this remarkable exchange of ideas across disciplines. I decided to study economics because when I was a woman in her 20s, I didn't understand why economics had such a grip on so many decisions in the world. And that was in the 1970s. And if anything, the grip economics has, which is not a science, <laughs> So it is more theoretical than it is applied, but it has governed decision-making for decades and in a way led to the Anthropocene and the failures that we are now witnessing that are forcing a rethink in how we think about economics and how economic decision-making gets made. I don't know whether it will ever be eclipsed by another discipline in terms of how we choose our priorities as a society, but I do know that there are several things that are being forced to be looked at again, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of climate change, partly because the old world order just does not deliver on its own terms anymore. In fact, you'll remember in 2008, in the fall, when the global financial crisis crippled so many rich nations, Queen Elizabeth of England asked, didn't you see this coming of economists? Our discipline is not built for purpose because it is too full of ideology and religion rather than actual science and evidence. That is shifting. We are starting to see this discipline move from theory to evidence-informed theory, which is throwing out some of our old ways of doing things. Chief on that list will be inequalities. In good times and in bad times in the last 40 years, inequalities have grown. So what is the formula for reducing inequalities when we know that trickle-down no longer works, which was the primary economic formula? Give more money to those who already had money, they'd invest it and create jobs. Well, they might have created jobs, but many of those jobs were pretty crappy and created more political tensions around the world than they assuaged. Population aging isn't going to let us duck this issue of inequality because more people are exiting the labor market than entering it throughout the global north. We are looking at a massive shift in geopolitical realities, in workers' bargaining power, but also in the needs to make good on the very evocative phrase that the IMF, the World Bank, all the major mainstream economic think tanks have been calling for since 2010 the phrase inclusive growth. So we're moving from trickle down to boost the economy up by actually improving the conditions of those who are the most hard hit. So that is going to raise a conversation, not just about where does money go to get a return, but how do we get the best jobs out of the deal? And there is going to be a global competition for that because of technology. Technology reaching into parts of the labor market that were not immune, but less impacted by the last three, four decades of outsourcing good jobs in manufacturing. Now this is going to start hitting because of AI, because of automation, and because technology always unbundles tasks from jobs. That's now starting to affect high-skill, high-paid jobs like medical diagnostics, like legal analysis, like accounting and auditing, like translation. All of these things mean that better paid jobs will be coming in more competition with people with the same skills from another part of the world where cost of living is cheaper. So we are going to be looking at a form of challenge to rich nations that we have not seen before and a leveling up 
of the global south and more opportunities for the global south. So we're going to see global wage convergence in a way we haven't seen for a very long time, which will mean that the rich are worse off and the poor get better off because of technology. And this is in the highest skill jobs. Again, engineering, translation, auditing, accounting, legal, and some medical diagnostic things are all in this chain. Finally, I'm going to say that I have six reasons why the paradigm is shifting in economics, but maybe the most important will be because of population aging and because we may be losing revenues from the richest members of society, the people with the highest skills and what used to be the highest paid jobs, that there will be some kind of public finance crunch because seniors don't want to pay more in taxes, but they do take, they are paying less than they were when they were working aged and they will really resist inflation. Governments are going to have to prove how they're spending public funds without raising taxes and without cutting services is the optimal way of spending on public services. Now, we've been living for 40 years on an ethos of more market, less government, but we are moving into 25, 30 years because of population aging of far more reliance on government than we have seen throughout most of the 20th century, except for a brief window when the boomers were born. So now governments are going to have to do less talk about austerity and fighting deficits and balancing books and more about showing us what our money is buying collectively. What are the things we are changing by operating collectively to reduce inequalities, improve opportunities, and create growth? That's how we're going to be maximizing economic potential. So we are looking at a wholesale and radical departure from the past 40, 50 years, which was driven by rising inequalities are okay and export-driven growth is the primary way you're going to extract value out of the economy, where you're going from an extraction frame to an inclusion frame, at least that's a possibility. Both will absolutely maximize economic potential, but the road to the future could not be more starkly different. Thank you very much, Armina, for those opening comments. Provocative, which is very good certainly paradigm shifting, and I look forward to engaging with you, and I'm sure other panelists do too. Will we have a leveling up as a result of technological change, or might it widen inequalities unless we do things about it? And certainly the question of the future of jobs, which you highlighted, is vital. Achim Steiner uh, has been the administrator of the UNDP since actually he took over from me as the head of the Oxford Martin School, and before that, he was the head of the United Nations Environmental Programme, so embracing many different dimensions of this. Achim, your initial thoughts, please. Thank you, Ian, and what a pleasure to join uh, such a distinguished panel and to join on an occasion when INSA brings us together on something that I first discovered through the eyes of uh, Peter Gluckman and his leadership also on this interface between science and policy. And as you can all imagine, leading a United Nations development program in this particular moment in, in history is um, the continuous attempt to try and bring science into policy making, sometimes on a daily basis as we face this pandemic. And since our panel took the pandemic as a sort of departure point, let me begin by positing that I think the reshaping of science advice and the paradigm shifts will not yet be clear for a little while because what we're seeing right now when it comes to science is almost a schizophrenic reality. 
on the one hand, we're experiencing the extraordinary power of science in developing in the shortest possible period of time a vaccine, and then multiple vaccines, and that are proving to be quite effective. And therefore, this should be a moment in which we celebrate science, uh, human ingenuity, the frontiers of knowledge, so to speak, that have just taken an extraordinary leap forward. And yet, we're also living in an intensely contradictory moment because science is at times being ignored so blatantly and deliberately by large groups in our population and leaders for that matter, which kind of raises the question, what is going on here? I mean, on the one hand, demonstrably the power of science helping us to get this pandemic over time under control. On the other hand, human behaviors in parts of our society that are rejecting science lock, stock and barrels. So I think science advice in many ways is meant to usually help clarify, first of all, what we don't know. The journey of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change over the last 30 years is an interesting one. It allowed us to take, so to speak, uh, certain glimpses of scientific reality about global warming and greenhouse gases and over time consolidate this with a, a world of research to the point where you know the latest reports clearly are no longer contestable. And yet, even in climate change, we see this extraordinary ability of parts of society to, on the one hand, receive a report like this, and on the other hand, arrive at totally different conclusions. So science in its clarifying and sometimes determining outcomes mode that perhaps we were more used to in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is in a different era. And the pandemic, unfortunately, has also revealed the limitations of science in answering questions that we simply don't have an answer to, because science is not a revelation of complete understanding. It is an incremental process of discovery. And I think in the pandemic, this has been as much a, a ray of hope as it has been actually a driver of confusion and uncertainty and skepticism. So these strange debates about whether to wear masks or not that we're witnessing right now are symptomatic rather than I think really at the core of something that I think has a lot to do with that shifting paradigm. It, it came up actually in the little video I noticed uh, for Inza at the start. Trust. Science may in many ways be something that we can say is objective identification knowledge based on empirical experimentation and, and derivations. But at the end of the day, we live in a world where science is just one element that drives decision-making. And at the end of the day, we are confronted with choices, choices that we need to make. And I think part of what we are struggling with right now is on the one hand, taking the complexity of what we need to know and understand in order to be able to make wise and smart choices. In the sort of background paper, in fact, to the strategic plan that you alluded to as we were preparing that is being discussed in my board today, we prepared a, a sort of landscape paper. And one of the trends that we uh, try to describe is that we're an age where we need to solve a puzzle rather than answer a question or solve a problem. And, you know, science at any moment in time does not provide you with everything that you need to solve that puzzle. Secondly, there are choices that are being made. You know, being a development practitioner, but I'm sure Amin will understand this as an economist, as will Elder David Koshin, we still have to make choices. For instance, one of the trends that we also identified of drivers is that in addition to our social contracts being under pressure, the thing that sort of binds us together as a community or as a nation, there are some really hard questions being asked and we don't have identical answers. How much inequality is too much? 
you know, we've spent the last 60, 70 years in a development paradigm where growth by enlarging the pie kind of allowed us constantly to avoid that question. And yet in the last few years, inequality has been an incredibly central and force for divisiveness because people are beginning to question not the fact that, yes, growth creates more money and therefore things can trickle down as, as was used to be the economic theory, but what is fair and what is just? And suddenly a, a science, a social science, as you said, I mean, like economics, immediately hits its limitations. And what I sense will come out of this pandemic is hopefully a clearer understanding of where science can help us answer certain questions, its limitations sometimes, but also how science combined with technology can indeed continue to be a driver for enlarging possibilities. But what science and science advice in its own right perhaps will not do is to help us arrive at decisions and making choices that are not simply a derivative of science. And here, you know, in my little note that I shared with all of you in advance of this, I referred to the, the age of the Anthropocene. And, you know, in some scientific circles, including the geologists, there is still a debate, will we call our era the era of the Anthropocene or not? But set that aside for a moment, what is fundamental to that is, I think, a realization that collectively as human beings in this era, and the argument is being made, we are the first generation of the Anthropocene, our ability to shape what happens next on this planet is without precedent. And at the same time, our consciousness, our ability to take decisions with that in mind has not yet caught up. So scientific advice in the era of climate change, of pandemics, of growing social tensions, I think will um, have to evolve in the way that a chief scientist, for example, in government is a critical reference point, but it needs to be combined with other elements. And trust is not something that you can either buy with economic growth nor derive from an experiment. You have to earn it. And leadership in government, in part, will be strengthened through science. But I think at the same time, we have seen how science can be assaulted and leadership can be questioned despite all the science. And I think these are some of the parameters within which we perhaps will move forward in that evolving paradigm. Back to you, Ian. Thank you. Thanks so much, Achim, for highlighting this, particularly about the role of science in society, the schizophrenic reality that you pointed to, which is also highlighted in the fact that although we have vaccines in the rich countries, we have less than 2% penetration in low-income countries or the lowest-income countries. So even if science exists, who gets it, which you highlighted too, and also um, the importance of embedding it in wider context, not least ethical and political and social and we'll no doubt come back to that. And that's a very nice segue as well, I think, to Elder Dave Korshen, who is certainly thinking about science in a broader context of humanity and its relationship to the planet. Elder Dave, over to you. Thank you so much, Ian. My dear brothers and sisters, there is a true, a great truth that is that ignorance of the natural laws is the root cause of, of human suffering. We're bound by self-enforcing natural laws. We must be prepared to understand the root of our reality, both in terms of our own health, as well as the health of the earth. And we have broken natural law. This is the crisis of our time. 
as indigenous peoples, we have always seen the earth as a living entity with a spirit, which gives her purpose, duties, and, and responsibilities. Knowing the earth is alive is fundamental to having a sacred relationship with her. The most important part of our nature is our spirit, which defines our true identity. This, of course, includes our responsibility to take better care of the earth. We need to understand this deep part of our nature. There is one uni universal natural law that says, what you put into your individual circle of life will be returned, multiplied. What we have done collectively will also re be returned to us. No one can escape this law. The earth operates on the principle of balance. What we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. Today, humanity, has to make some changes if we're going to survive as a species. And it will require nothing less than a change, of the, a change of the heart. With all the intelligence we have available to us, we must encode spiritual and moral intelligence. This should be the foundation of our world. As indigenous peoples, we have lived and survived with the influence of the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is regarded was a source of higher intelligence and inspiration. Visions and dreams have always been a part of our way of life. We must change from a paradigm that predominantly values economic growth to, to one that values human moral and spiritual development. There will be a high cost economically to repair the changes nature has in store for us. And if we do not, indigenous knowledge can provide a framework of security land-based education that can give all our youth the best chance of surviving, following natural law, beginning with the rites of passage to adulthood. We cannot continue to depend upon what has brought us into this time of crisis. It's our behavior that has led us here, having the mindset we can possess and control the earth. As we have exploited the earth's resources, we have created such a polluted environment. All life is now threatened. The old ones, the knowledge keepers of our nations, continue to advise us to be guided by our spiritual and moral intelligence. The challenge we all face today is to make a journey into our hearts that holds that part of our nature that we refer to as the spirit. We have become spiritually illiterate because we have disconnected ourselves from the land. The land is the best teacher to help us understand the change or changes that has to be made. Our biggest challenge as humanity is to shift to positive moral values that support the natural laws. We must make the journey to the land to find ourselves. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Elder Dave, for that deeply wise thoughts. I think also builds very much on what Achim was saying about thinking about what is fair, and not only to human beings, but fair to other creatures on Earth and our relationship to the environment and environmental ethics. And perhaps I could begin with you, and then I'll circle back to the other panelists with some questions. But do you feel that in the pandemic, we've all had to slow down. We're not traveling as much. And many people have told me, and I've written about this in my recent book, 
that they're reconnecting with nature in ways that they weren't before. That's also being made more dramatic by the experience of climate change and seeing these extreme events. Do you feel that there is some sort of awakening going on? There's a paradigm shift in this that we can look to as a silver lining of the pandemic and that maybe build on? I think there's absolutely no doubt that uh, nature, you know, is the driving force that we need to change our current behavior. Because if we don't, then of course we can face, you know, really dark future. And in our way of thinking as indigenous people, we've always relied on nature to bring the messages that we need to offer us warnings or to make changes. And certainly the pandemic, you know, this small little virus, you know, has had such a global impact that it does motivate us somewhat to rethink the way that we're living. And given, you know, what science has confirmed, you know, every day, that we can't continue walking down this path. And being a people that are so closely connected to the land, the great knowledge and understanding that Indigenous people have is something I feel is very much needed to be given that opportunity to, to act as part of the voice of the concern that we have of what's happening to our world. And it's been said over and over again, you know, by the elders that we have to center our children in any decisions that we make in life. However, in whatever structures that we set up, you know, is it really in support of the rights of the child that are born, you know, to be given what they need in order to fulfill their own lives? And then we're going to have to go beyond our, our own unwillingness, you know, to be able to develop that spirit to unify for, for the common good of all. And basically what it is, is really returning back to relying on our own common sense. You know, we see things falling apart and we know that we need to do something. And people in positions of power and influence, I think, have a very important responsibility, you know, at least to give opportunity for the public the children, first of all, should be the priority of giving them the proper education. We can't keep denying them, you know, by not having an opportunity to feel the land and to be a part of the land, because that's the source of life itself. So everything that we see happening is we see it as all natural. And it has everything to do with our with our purpose and destiny as human beings in, in this world. Yeah, thank you very, very much. We'll come back to discussing this in in greater detail. Achim, you are in a powerful position of being head of um, the UN's development agency. Do you sense that a, a paradigm shift is happening in development? Is what you're talking about and the way that people are talking about things very different to what would have happened, say, five or 10 or 20 years ago? Yes, I believe so. But I want to pick up where Elder David Koshin just left off, which is this notion of common sense. Sometimes people see common sense as a sort of contradiction of the notion of science, for example, but actually common sense is another form of personal science and values brought together. And I think if you look back to the three, four years before the pandemic hit us, we were already, as both of my fellow panelists have said, in a period of distress, and Ian, you have written about it yourself extensively, we were not happy societies, let's be clear. First of all, um, we uh, increasingly could sense that you know, our relationship with nature was profoundly disrupted, disturbed, whether climate change, the loss of biodiversity. And sometimes you know, our ability to recognize that was also 
in part empowered by science. Remember the hole in the ozone layer, almost an accidental discovery of scientific research that then led us to being actually able to, um, you know, as a world community, come together what is perhaps still the most successful environmental treaty, the Montreal Protocol, and to phase out, you know, these ozone-depleting substances. But the underlying sense among citizens across the world is that too many things are not in balance. And whether it is injustice, inequality, it's also not defined by whether you live in rich or poor countries. You know, as a development organization, much of our focus has been on poorer countries. But in fact, whether you look to Hong Kong, to Paris, to London, to the United States, uh, Chile, I mean, you can find these tensions beginning to bubble onto the street. And when, when citizens begin to take their frustrations onto the street, you know you've entered another phase. So I think amongst our citizens, that intuitive and common sense view of we need to change paradigms has been maturing for a number of years. But this is where we run into the political economy of our time. And this is perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm sure I mean will comment on that as well in a moment. What is it that will make leaders and those who, in a sense, are decision makers in our nations, in our economies, in our societies, move forward? And when we have CEOs of publicly traded companies for years and years, using shareholders' money to buy science out of public visibility in order to stop society from actually taking decisions. What kind of license to operate are we in our societies confronting today? And when we see the willingness of politicians to defer decisions simply because the next electoral cycle will be difficult to handle if you actually make a leap forward, what kind of political leadership have we got? So. What we are seeing right now is a dangerous clash between where common sense and citizen, maybe even citizen science, if you want, is actually clamoring for a paradigm shift. And leadership, whether in economic power and political power, is simply not stepping up. And, you know, very often for arguments that have imprisoned us for far too long. In the midst of this pandemic, look at the trillions of dollars we have suddenly been able to mobilize. I mean, this goes against everything that the viziers of our financial system, of financial stability, of balanced budgets have argued, and yet in the midst of this crisis, we are perfectly capable of mobilizing trillions of dollars. Now, the big question, I think the next test of whether the paradigm shift is going to be more profound, is that same group again going to be able to direct these resources that are an intergenerational loan we have taken into getting back to where we were, or is it going to be a pivot point of how we build forward better? And that is the battle of our next year or two. And I think the outcome is as yet uncertain, one has to be honest, because what brought us to this precipice is not necessarily human ignorance. It is more human greed and human complacency and the sense that some will simply be able to buy their way out of these problems and others will have to fend for themselves. And that goes back to a fundamental issue, not only of our relationship with nature, but also with each other. And I think with 7 billion people on the planet, we basically have hit a point where you can't just turn somewhere else on the planet to make up for something that you're not solving. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll no doubt come back to this as well if we have time. I mean, you spoke rather optimistically, I thought, about inequality going to come down that I mean I my guess is that it's going to go up so um, because I think that rather than as you say a leveling up 
and wage convergence, what the new technologies are doing is increasing wage inequality and that the middle rungs of the development ladder are being removed. But could you tell us why you feel that's the case or are you hoping it's the case? And also, do you see signs in the activities of the international institutions, particularly the IMF now talking about stopping austerity to countries and gender and climate change? Do you see a paradigm shift already happening or is this something that you are anticipating as a possibility? And if, if so, what do we need to make do to make sure it happens? Well, there's about 10 questions in, in that question. So let me see if I can parse some of them. Am I optimistic that inequality can be lessened? Certainly nothing in my life has led to that optimism, but I think the common sense that Elder Dave Pushen was talking about and that Ahim was able to point to as well, would say that we cannot continue what we've been doing without leaving literally, I mean, even if you're just an economist that wants more money in the system, you want a bigger pie. We're leaving money on the table by not investing in the human potential of those who are the most sidelined. If you're gonna look at it from a return on investment perspective, the biggest bang for your buck is making sure the people that have been sidelined get into the game. That's how you're going to grow the pie the fastest in the global north, where they're the most concerned about growing the pie, I would argue. It's like they don't want to lose money. So that to me is a hopeful sign that people are starting to cotton on to the intersection between social and economic policies, where the common sense is if you do what is actually Population Health 101, you know, population health science will show that there is a socioeconomic gradient of health in every country, the slope of which varies according to the degree of income inequality. And the way that you improve the population health of the entire society is not by bringing down the rich or raising up the middle, it's by boosting the bottom. Once you boost the bottom up, the people that are the sickest, who get the sickest quickest, if you deal with that group, you flatten the gradient, you make access to health more of a reality, and you actually lift the entire slope up. That's the way you improve population and public health. We are starting to see that because of the pandemic, we are starting to see that the people we viewed as most essential in the global north were often people that were the least well-paid, but we relied on the most. And we are starting to see labor tightness in virtually all the countries of the global north. South Korea is aging the most rapidly. It was the economic tiger of the global north prior to the pandemic. China is aging very rapidly because of the one-child policy. We think of Japan as like the leader in the parade. That's not the case. Canada's doing not too badly. The United States is doing better than Canada because it's got a higher fertility rate. But countries in, the, in Europe, all of us are dealing with the same thing, more exits from than entries to the labor market. So that to me eclipses the robots are gonna eat all of the jobs story and puts more of a premium on actually boosting the lived experience, the opportunities and the lived experience of those at the bottom of the income spectrum because they do so much of the essential work. I think the pandemic lifted the hood on that and permits us to actually understand in real time 
what it means to have an essential economy is that you have to have a care economy at the foundation of the essential economy. And the phrase, everybody wants to build a bigger pie, it's actually we've got the wrong pastry in mind. The pastry in question is a layer cake. The foundational layer is there for life, to Elder Dave Crochane's point. The next layer is the care, the love economy, how we care for one another, how we care for ourselves. That's both paid and unpaid. The next layer is public infrastructure, which permits all sorts of things to happen, like health, education, roads and bridges. It's on top of that that GDP gets created. You need those prior three layers before you talk about GDP growing, because you can't grow GDP without those prior layers. And we're just starting that conversation that understands it isn't that top layer we need to pay attention to. It's all the things that build up to it. And to Elder Day, of course, Shane's point about the spirituality that we are dissociated from. Ahim said something kind of close to it. I think what the pandemic has permitted us to see that we did not see broadly before because so few people have any kind of spirituality in the global north as part of their day-to-day. -day. The idea that we need to care for the planet, for one another, and for our relationship with the creator, those three relationships need to be front and center that we are not the main event. In our own lives, we are not the main event. And it's all these relationships that need to guide where we're going. So to wrap a bow on what I think was your question is, do I actually think that technology isn't going to increase inequality? Well, it might. It might make some of the richest people in the global north worse off than they might have otherwise been, but that will probably reduce inequality, <laughs> you know, both between the global south and the global north, but within within a given place is like, if the rich aren't doing quite as well as they were before and the poor are doing better than they were before, we might actually be seeing less inequality. But if not that, Ian, I don't know where we're headed. I mean, if inequality does grow, bring out the pitchforks. Like what we're talking about is Lord of the Flies communities everywhere where there are no rules, nobody trusts anybody and everybody's out, out for number one. I hope, to God that that isn't the future. We certainly have had, as Elder Dave Korshane has said, plenty of warning from the forces that be, human and otherwise, that we're on the wrong track and that we need to change our path if we are going to avoid the worst. We certainly do. And that's indeed why I'm sure the Inksa uh, had this panel in mind when they said it. Well, I just wanna take a couple of questions that have come in and combine them so we can respond. And these are questions regarding science, not surprisingly in research. One question is, do we need to invest in more science? Is there more we have to learn in order to solve the problems? Or is it about focusing the knowledge we already have and how do we do so? And a related question is, how are we accessing civil society's capacity for information and solving problems? And are we assuming too much that we need to go to sort of the laboratories or the science advisors to get advice rather than drawing on what is there. So if I can throw those combined questions to you and if you could keep your responses to very short, a minute or so, I will hopefully be able to respond to 
the participants and give them some feedback and then encourage you to carry on the conversation on social media. Elder Dave, what do you make of those questions? I think in order to put things in its most simplest context is that we really do have to make that journey, you know, where the truth is really held within our own being. You know, that's something that's always been practiced by the Indigenous people to make that journey to the spiritual part of our our nature. And that, that's a very challenging uh, role to have to try to explain and to try to intellectual something that you really cannot intellectualize. It's something that one has to make a personal commitment to want to find the truth of their own identity and their own being, which defines their own purpose in life. And that is why, you know, I've advocated, you know, that we give an opportunity for the children today that we revolutionize the whole education system, science, and, you know, all that we have at our disposal at the present time, I believe it's all there. I think, you know, that the work that needs to be done is to try to at least be open, you know, to that part of our nature and allow Indigenous people to have a role in these discussions like we're having right now. To me, I, you know, I find very, very rewarding. I think we've always been marginalized as a people that we didn't have anything to contribute. And yet we have, you know, this knowledge that has evolved over tens of thousands of years. And I think of uh, enough people that could show, you know, that understanding and all, allow us to be a part of uh, these discussions. And everything has a, a place, science, technology, whatever. But what the, I believe that's been missing in, the, in these conversations is what we believe is the most important part is our spiritual responsibility and moral obligation that we have toward each other and, and certainly to the earth. Thank you very much for that. And I think that that's a great response to these questions. We need to look to ourselves and advise ourselves. Achim. I certainly believe that science will continue to matter enormously. Um, and I think the horizon of scientific knowledge is growing exponentially as more people become scientifically literate as science. And also, you know, we didn't touch much on it today, but digitalization, artificial intelligence provides us with enormous opportunities. And, you know, whether the, the satellites that now surround planet Earth and allow us on the one hand to monitor and appreciate quite how profound the extent of environmental change on the planet is, or whether it is when you're planning a journey and you sit in your home and you basically access one of the platforms to find out how long is it going to take me with what transport to get from A to B, and you get this instant information. I mean, there are so many things that some people might think are superfluous or ubiquitous, and others that are fundamental to moving to understand the planet and also the realm of science and technology beyond our own perceptions. So I think, yes, an unequivocal, I think the frontiers will continue to grow, they will matter, but not in an ethical and normative vacuum. And I think to that point, Elder David just spoke about a kind of ethical illiteracy, I think you called it earlier on, or something along those lines. And I think this is our greatest challenge because the power of science and technology in our age has exceeded or transcended perhaps the um, ability of societies to evolve their normative framework alongside. So what is possible and feasible is not necessarily desirable. That's not new. But our ability as society to actually agree that something is not necessarily desirable, even if it's feasible, 
has been overtaken by the speed of technology and science. I think that is perhaps one of the greatest challenges that we face at, at this particular moment. Thank you, Achim. And finally, Armin, over to you. One of my six paradigm shifts for my contribution was who owns the data and how do we use it? So there is a schism between public use of data or even public access, access to our data for public use and how the private sector uses it. The private sector is far more nimble. It does two things. Ahim actually referenced it earlier. It both suppresses information and it also creates information. And what, one of the remarkable, I mean, it's almost like at the apogee of the Age of Enlightenment is the creation of fake news. We don't even know what information is true. So what information is true and why it exists for what purposes and who in the public sector can actually marshal big data to improve the quality of life, not just broaden and deepen markets. This is one of the big schisms coming at us going forward. So it isn't just democratization of science because of digital access plus AI. It's the fact that individuals or small groups of people can actually make bigger change now than societies. It's the African proverb, you know, if you want to run fastest, run by yourself. If you want to run furthest, run with others. So one of these days, we are going to figure out how to, through common sense and through ethical purpose, distinguish between fake news and actual science. But that landscape is very blurry right now. And that makes it very challenging for us to function on a level playing field with what is actually the evidence from which we are taking common sense. I mean, that's Maybe easier for First Nations that are living and <laughs> living and witnessing in real time what is happening to land, but there's lots of other types of information that is also true and scientific that is in question. It's just as much in question as our ethics. So I really think the uh, ethical dimension of this and who owns the data and how do they use it for what purpose is going to be one of the big dividing lines going forward. Thank you. I think, um, you know, I, I was concerned at the beginning of this panel that we're so divergent in where we've come from that we wouldn't uh, be able to converge. But I think we absolutely have. What I've heard from everyone is a strong belief in science. And I don't think anyone has said we should not have more science. And we certainly need more good vaccines. Uh, we need more clean energy. We need more understanding of what we're doing to the planet. And of course, we need to spread that more widely. So more science and more inclusiveness of science, I think, is what I'm hearing. I'm also hearing the need to place science in a context, the importance of context and interpreting the science, the undermining of science through fake news and the challenges that that brings, the importance of placing it in the context of common sense, what we understand, and particularly our sense of the planet, our sense of who we are, where we come from, and that, as Elder Dave has so poignantly placed in our conversation, the importance of being in harmony on our multiple dimensions. But that too is something that, of course, will require us a better understanding of looking at ourselves, but also understanding the planet. So I've been delighted to be able to benefit from this conversation. There's nothing more important, not only than understanding where the paradigm is shifting, but being part of the change, because if you're not part of the change, it won't happen. Thanks to all of you. Good day to you wherever you are, and good luck to you in your endeavors. 
The International Network for Government Science Advice is the leading global network for those interested in the dynamics of research-informed public policy making. For more content, news and opportunities from the Science Policy Interface, join the INGSA network for free at ingsa.org. That's I-N-G-S-A And join us again soon for more great minds and great conversations. Thank you.